0: care for all Rose bros can suck my balls fuck your reply guys please don't fuck your reply guys just listen to reply guys hello and welcome back to reply guys the left is feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us i am kate willett
1: and i am julia clare
0: Hello, Reply Guys. Uh, You know, we are thinking a lot this week just about, like, you know, how how you as our, our listeners are, are feeling. We know this is like a really scary time for people um, in this COVID surge. And also a lot of us are just having a really hard time kind of going into winter. It's getting dark really early. A lot of us don't have the option of, you know, going for as many uh, socially distanced masked walks anymore. Uh, and, you know, it's been like, it's been kind of sad. I've been really, I've been sad. I'm not trying to create a depressing episode here, but like, you know, I just want to acknowledge, like this has been an extremely challenging time emotionally. Yeah. How are you feeling about it?
1: Um, Well, I thought I was handling it pretty okay. <laughs> then my therapist told me that it seems she, she has noticed that she, she thinks I've been disassociating. <laughs> <laughs> well, new skill in wh- quarantine, new hobby. <laughs> what what
0: what is disassociating if you don't mind me asking? Um, it's basically just like uh
1: not going outside of your body, but just kind of like removing yourself from yourself. Uh so how do you do that? I Asking don't for a friend.
0: I, I want to learn. How can I disassociate? I this sounds know. really great. I just like
1: there were a few things that happened in the past few weeks that I wasn't. That have been like pretty challenging for me emotionally. And it was essentially just uh, unintentionally, unconsciously, not allowing myself to feel those things uh, to just kind of act as though it was happening to someone else almost, um, kind of depersonalizing it. Uh, and this is not healthy per se. Or, And again, I wasn't in trying to do it, but this is just something that my therapist flagged for me today. So that's not great. Uh, but I just think it's been one of those years it's where it's been a long year. I'm just like, I'm, I'm sleeping a lot more. I was talking to Brandy Jansen about this on our, our Patreon episode this week. And, uh, yeah, I was like, I've been sleeping a lot more. What's that about? And she's like, depression. That's what that's about. (laughs) So we've, we've all been going through it. It's, it's really hard, but I am, the thing that has helped me the most is, um, just trying to keep in touch with people as much as who I love as much as possible. Um, that's really the only thing that, that we can do right now. I'm, I'm talking on the phone a lot. I'm FaceTiming a little bit, but I'm just kind of burnt out on looking at myself. Uh, (laughs) so.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm very, very, very sick of zoom. I mean, uh, you know our uh, our f- our favorite podcast, or at least my favorite podcast, aside from you know Reply Guys, of course. Right. Um, citations needed, citations which needed. is so good, so good. It's, it's all the all the leftists, none of the bro. Just really such smart media analysis. But they did a really great episode um, a couple weeks ago, which I'll go ahead and make my recommendation for the week. But you know, kind of talking about how all of these. Um, All these conversations about mental health are framed in terms of self-care, you know? yeah. Uh, Well, it's either like the articles are like, you know, two options. Basically, one is, uh, you know, there is this kind of widespread mental health crisis that's going on. And then two is uh, there's a widespread mental health conversation crisis that's going on. And, you know, the solution can be self-care, you know, but there's not like there's never the the third step of like, uh, what should we do about this social problem as a society? What should the government be doing about this? And I think like that was a good reminder. I felt a little bit better because it's like in reality, the kind of the things that we're feeling right now, like self-care is good. Like I recommend that you do it. I'm going to try it myself someday. Um, But, uh, (laughs) but you know, that's, it's not like this is, you know, this is like a a social crisis. Like we're not supposed to uh, all be in our homes for the better part of a year. We're not supposed to uh, just accept that, you know, uh, Hundreds of thousands of people Die yeah. or you know Like this this level of like Poverty and hunger And unemployment like it, it makes sense To feel really fucking Upset about it you know um, <laughs> That Yeah I, That Chuck Schumer tweet from a few weeks Ago I've just been thinking about it You know like um, I don't Remember the exact thing but basically like A, a veteran committed suicide oh yeah and uh and it's he said chuck schumer said in the tweet because he couldn't uh, pay his bills and then he's like so we're having a suicide prevention act you know and it's like no dude like it said right there like he couldn't pay his bills like give people fucking money yeah you know twelve hundred dollars for the entire pandemic and you know there is like there has been some unemployment assistance but you know th- that the $600 is expired the um he, he extended benefits you know may uh, are set to expire this month so you know tbd what's going to happen um on that but you know like it just it really makes sense to feel upset. And, you know, this is like perhaps a conversation that I should be having with myself alone <laughs> instead of a podcast. <laughs> You're not crazy. It makes sense that you feel this way. Your feelings are valid. But I it feels like actually something that I wanted to say out loud this week because I, I think like a, a lot of us are really struggling with it. Yeah. I felt like the past I you know I kind of went through like a week-long period where I just felt like floored like I haven't been that depressed since I was like in high school listening to Fiona Apple every day yeah it's just you know I mean I went through some really hard times last year like I've talked about on the podcast but there there is something about like the just you know the 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 kind of like not personal nature of this situation um you know it's not like a you know it's 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 not like a thing that's just like happening to to one of us you know like it's just it's like a huge crisis in our society that nobody is fucking doing anything about and so there is like a, a sort of like really acute intense sense of powerlessness with that that like is beyond even what i feel um you know, on a normal day, as a leftist in yeah, the United States of America, no, sure. yeah. And I
1: and I don't even think that, like, I'm sure. You know, I, I don't want, I don't want it to come off as though, like, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been, <laughs> you know, having some weird moments of of trying to cope with this or like disassociating because I just think that the enormity of what has happened this year almost just like can't be quantified. And I think everyone is overwhelmed and kind of uh, hanging by a thread emotionally. And I think that's a completely normal response to a year like this. I will say about self-care, which I totally agree with what you're saying, so often it has just been packaged as like a thing you can buy, you know, and – I guess in our country, it is, unfortunately. But I really think the term self-care has become really sullied, I think, because it just has such a capitalist connotation.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's pulling yourself by your bootstraps, yeah. pulling yourself up by your bootstraps emotionally. By your, and, you know, by it's your like, bombs. Yeah, if you, <laughs> you know, if you are able to... Go to therapy if you can afford it, if you've access to it. I recommend that for everyone. Uh there's, you know, like there are a lot of uh sliding scale options available depending on you might you might not even have to be where you live because you know, a lot of it's online now. Uh, you know, it's it's challenging. Like yeah. there's there's a there's a lot of uh lot of demand for mental health services right now. So like sign up like soon like put yourself like on a waiting list um you know so you know do that kind of stuff for sure do a fucking sheet mask if that makes you feel better eat a pizza whatever your form of like self-care is like i'm i'm definitely not trying to like talk anyone out of doing it but there also like is this this thing that It feels like a more kind of authentic version of self care to me, which is just to like have a bit of compassion for ourselves. That like the reason that we feel like this is because shit is legitimately fucked up. Shit is bad. Like, yeah, it's not like we're not supposed to be experiencing this. You know, like I mean, just like the level of uh, capitalist horror show that's going on right now is extremely detrimental to human life to human health physically emotionally and it's like i don't know for me it just kind of helps to like see myself in the bigger picture of it sometimes when i start feeling like oh my god what's wrong with me i'm crazy i'm depressed you know it's just like this is is actually like a pretty normal reaction to the situation that we find ourselves in at this moment you know
1: absolutely cosine completely agree and you know what what's been helpful for me in times where I am overly self-critical about things like being too sad in a time like this, which is such a a, a silly self-criticism. It's just like, you know, trying to talk to myself the way that I would talk to someone I love, a friend, family member, something like that. Well, not a family member because it's a lot of my family members I really let it fly with, but...
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was about to say Wow I I would not just you have a better relationship with your family than I do. I would not
1: advise talking to yourself the way that I talk to my dad.
0: (laughs) I mean, I could see myself talking to myself the way that I talk to my mom. Like you know, I'm just just like, no more comments about my fucking weight, you know. (laughs) Just it's none of your goddamn business like that actually might be cathartic you know <laughs> uh pets really help i mean i i definitely know that not everyone is in a position to get a pet depending on where you live or you know finances and stuff but it's you know uh, it's helped me enormously um you know socially distance walks even when it's cold there is stuff that helps i'm just saying like yeah. you know I'm not saying don't do stuff that helps. I'm just saying, like, it's like it's fucked up to lay all the blame on ourselves. No, of course uh, not. And situation. obviously, you know, so as we talk about on this
1: show over and over and over again, you know, so many of these problems that are structural get laid at the feet of individuals. And that obviously is, you know, come to roost in this case as well. Like... Yeah um, You know who I
0: blame You know who I blame Julia Who, who do you blame I blame Donald Trump <laughs> I am Tired of him That fucking uh, Cheeto Motherfucker the, the Cheeto in Chief the Cheeto And I am so Chief. looking forward to You know Uh 40 50 some odd days from now When He is, Leaves office And is replaced
1: and, By and, and is replaced By <laughs>
0: yeah who's gonna cure all of our problems uh with especially centrism. because K- kamala will be there you know i, I mean she to be the to no be the, one's gonna,
1: the yes queen in chief
0: yes I, I she has a husband named doug they have a very good marriage apparently i mean okay, I'm I'll, say, I'll say that that I, that I am jealous of i'm jealous of anyone with a good marriage so go off
1: comment. yeah i still
0: yeah no i mean great have a good marriage i i think that when i think about a good marriage i i do think a lot about nippy from the vow i don't know oh my god I just the pure the pure support that he expressed uh for his wife you know i'm just like oh man you am branded, i gonna have to you, join yeah,
1: him screaming at keith ranieri you branded my fucking wife
0: <laughs> i loved it i loved it um so anyway, you know, we have a really good interview this week that isn't entirely on an unrelated topic. We're going to be talking to Natalie Shurigan about Medicare for all and about what that fight looks like potentially um, now that, you know, Bernie Sanders isn't an option. How do we go forward and work for this goal that is extremely important to both of us um yeah it's, it's you know to all of us, to to all most us people who
1: listen to the show yeah. yeah so um and we had her on last year to talk about medicare for all then as well but the you know i think it's it was interesting to to uh to check back in with her because the landscape obviously has changed in a number of ways uh the most obvious of which being that we're in a glo- we're still in a global pandemic that is more and more yeah. just a U.S. pandemic.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, by the landscape has changed. Do you mean that I haven't trimmed my bush for all of quarantine? I do mean that That's actually. You- that yeah, is exactly. what I mean. And I was hoping um,
1: I was hoping you would bring it up so I didn't have to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Word on the street, you
1: know. Um, <laughs> God, Kate just won't trim her bush, and it's uh, affecting public
0: policy. <laughs> You know, my boyfriend is uh, he's he's a he's not a hippie, but he lives in some kind of fucking treehouse <laughs> warehouse situation, and I'm like, you know what? This is this is like, this is okay. We can just you it know, is There's okay. just like an agreement. We can all be ourselves here. You know, Absolutely. I'm not I'm not I'm not doing the. I'm not doing a bikini wax in quarantine. Oh, God, you know why? Because no. I'm responsible social distancer. Absolutely. So anyways, all right. So let's get into our interview with Natalie. Uh, I, you know, she makes a lot of really, really good points here and obviously has like an incredibly deep knowledge of uh, this issue as well as some of the fights that have preceded the moment that we're in now. Um, so give it a listen. Thank you so much. Thanks. Just listen to Reply Guys hello and welcome back to reply guys we are so excited this week to be joined by a return guest one of our favorites that we've ever had on the show writer and researcher natalie sure welcome natalie thank you so much for having me how are you doing how's your pandemic going
2: it's uh it's been a, a rough few months right uh feel like high, high point over the summer, we were going outside, we were swimming and camping and, uh, I'm in Boston. So now the sun sets at around 4 PM and, um, we're just working our way through the Netflix catalog. Of I love that. Documentaries. I love yeah.
1: that. What are, what are the good ones? What are the hits?
2: You know, I, I would definitely recommend the one on hippos. <laughs> terrific i don't know we, we got into watching nature document i'm not like a huge i mean I, I like like animals but i'm not like a huge animal person but we just can't stop watching the pbs documentaries about animals all the time Damn. and that's pretty much what we've been doing
1: the only thing i know about hippos is that they kill more people than sharks wow i never year. knew
2: hippos were so deadly
1: hippos are fucking deadly you think yeah, you can
2: find youtube videos where people are like tossing them whole watermelons and then just like effortlessly smush them and it goes all over
0: the
1: place it's They're not, really they don't fuck around they don't
0: and uh, like, why would they why would they to- yeah exactly <laughs> uh big topic on the show that we need to check in about uh how's how's your pet this is like a this is a leftist slash pet podcast at this point pretty much mm-hmm. yeah <laughs>
2: Oh, good. Yeah, he's he's good. He never wants the pandemic to end. Um, you know, he, he is like a very, very cuddly dog. Got a little pug named Thackeray. And um, yeah, he pretty much just wants to be snuggling in between us or sitting on someone's lap uh, at all times. He gets a few walks a day. He's, he's loving it.
1: Wow.
0: Yeah, I well- was... Like pets are having like the greatest lives right now, you know. They think it's just like always lay down time and they think it's because they're cute or something, you know. It is yeah, always, indeed. it is always lay down time. Yeah. They're
1: they're correct about that. Uh, they just don't know why, which what attention
2: stream never ends.
1: What bliss that must be. <laughs> um, yeah, this is uh. Someone actually left a review on our on our show this week, <laughs> and the last line was "Love the show, love the cats." <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And so whoever whoever wrote that, thank you very much uh, for appreciating our robust cat content on this show. Um,
2: do they make noise on the podcast? Cats do. Mine, yeah. do, mine does not. Okay.
1: Nice. Uh, but mine, mine would make noise probably if she had someone to fight with, but she she's usually asleep when we record
2: <laughs> we'll see if she agrees with me on medicare for all maybe that will be the thing that gets right her right yeah. I,
1: I do think i i do think that she's uh she's a socialist because she demands that i share everything with her but that's about it that's all i can glean of her politics
0: yeah, I feel that my cats are probably a uh, capitalist. They're pretty much obsessed with uh hoarding resources for themselves <laughs> or uh, not very communally minded little animals. Um do they use
2: the resources to make new resources?
0: I mean, cuz
2: that w- that would be capital. If they don't do that, they're not
0: necessarily capitalists. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they wow. okay, they use Hell yeah. They Hell use yeah. boxes you to can, make you forts. You can delete this in the edit. That was yeah. just... <laughs> No worries. No, it's a good debate. I, they use boxes to make forts and they use uh Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Other than that, they're not very uh, skilled. <laughs> you know. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, no, watch out if they start charging rent on the forts. I know. I mean they
0: do they do they live in
1: colonies in the when they're like feral. Oh they do? I didn't know is, that. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um yeah, there's cat colonies all around uh New York City.
0: That's actually. so cute.
1: Um yeah, they're I mean they're very uh ferocious, the ones who live who live in those colonies. But people people who do uh who do volunteering for for rescues and stuff will put out food for for cat colonies and stuff like that. Um uh, we have we have uh, lost the thread folks. I'm so sorry that we've once again gone full gone full cat on this podcast. I'm just
0: leaning into it. But okay, our topic of the day is not cats. Our topic of the day is Medicare for All. And you know, we were thinking that it would be so amazing to have Natalie back on the show. Uh and talk about what the fight for Medicare for All looks like now because, you know, a lot of a lot of us, a lot of people who listen to the show were very uh, active in the Bernie Sanders campaign and really, like, I think, you know, hinging a lot of our hopes on that and now we have like, you know, now we're riding with Biden or whatever, so it's a little... <laughs> A little depressing, but we can't give up. Oh, it's so sad! It's so sad. Yeah,
2: it's not ideal.
0: <laughs> so, Natalie, well, what are your thoughts on this uh-huh. broadly?
2: Well, yeah. So, I guess you know whether whether you choose to look at this positively or negatively is, uh, I think, uh, a matter of interpretation. But one thing that I like to remind myself is that historically speaking, uh, moments. Uh, in the 20th century of, you know, great, great leftward gains. So things like the New Deal, uh, the Great Society, uh, civil rights wins, all of those required mass mobilization. They required people Mm -hmm. on the streets who were then able to force concessions out of the Democrat in power, right? It's not like... Um, those Democrats were inherently good people or, you know, looking for an excuse to give people things that they weren't demanding, et cetera. So I think that what the Bernie Sanders campaign essentially asked was, can that be reverse engineered, right? Like Mm. can, can someone use the presidency or, you know, in his case, his campaign certainly did this, was able to kind of be a spark that helped develop uh, a grassroots movement to um, agitate for things like Medicare for all, for things like loan forgiveness, etc. cetera. Um, he obviously didn't win. Um, but if he had, a lot of us would have been in, obviously we would have been in a much, much better situation had Bernie won. I don't want to sugarcoat that. But his promise, I think, was still that he was going to help Mobilize that uh, you know grassroots energy to demand things, to enact pressure on elected officials, and that we still would have had to do that under Bernie Sanders, and that uh, you know, in order to win things, people have to do that now. I obviously it didn't work. You know, Sanders wasn't able to win the presidency and reverse engineer a grassroots movement to win things like Medicare for All as the president. But I still think that's the basic question being asked by you know, campaigns like AOC, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, uh, the rest of the squad. So I think that we're still kind of experimenting with that theory of political change and Mm -hmm. that, you know, the marching orders for rank and file individuals like the people listening to this show are, you know, roughly similar as they would have been under Bernie.
0: That makes sense. I mean, you know, it's definitely really discouraging that, you know, Biden, has said, like, even if Medicare for all lands on his desk, that he'll veto it, you know? Um, and I think specifically he said, unless there's a way to pay for it, we see, like, centrist Democrats really leaning on this, like, deficit rhetoric again. And I'm I'm honestly anticipating uh, a lot of austerity, but, you know, uh, there's... I don't know, probably some element that, you know, we we can have control over. And I, I, I guess yeah, I'm wondering, like, you know, is there a situation where we can potentially do this under a Biden administration with mass mobilization?
2: Um, I, I mean, I think that it's always, it's always worth organizing and trying because a lot of the times organizing for these things takes a long time anyway, you know, like in the 1960s when Medicare was one, uh, a lot of that organization, a lot of that agitation came directly out of the campaigns in uh, the 1940s for national health insurance under Truman. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but no, I mean, I I think that the chances of us winning Medicare for all at the federal level between now and 2024 is um, I mean, uh, damn near close to zero uh, as, as much as it disappoints me to say so. But I think that the, somewhat silver lining. Um, I think that that means that a lot of Medicare for all efforts over the next couple of years will probably take place on the state level. Um, yeah. California had uh, a super robust campaign 2017-2018 for a state level single payer bill. And I actually interviewed some people uh, from that coalition Um, It's, you know, retooled and they're doing another push. So I I interviewed some of them today and they're saying that they're bringing new people in. They're really like ramping up their Spanish language, organizing, which is really great. Uh, And on the state level side, uh, we did just get some, I think, knock on wood, heartening news that Biden appointed uh, Javier Becerra as HHS. And so the HHS secretary would have a lot to do with um, approving applications for waivers that, uh, states would need to apply for to enact single payer at the state level. Um, so he's been a Medicare for all supporter in the past and has you know, nodded toward other relatively progressive health initiatives at various times. And so I at least think that there's reason to be confident that he would, uh, not reject waiver applications the way that I think some HHS secretaries would, and certainly the Trump administration would. So, you know, the the, the light of hope is not extinguished.
1: Uh, yeah, I I completely agree with that analysis. Can you um, shed a little bit more light on uh, Javier Becerra because I think he is not one of the names that that the general public generally knows.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were really surprised by his appointment. He's not someone that, you know, was on, as far as I read anyway, he wasn't on the, like, Politico power list of the five people who might be named to HHS or whatever else. Um, So he was a longtime representative in Los Angeles uh, and was appointed attorney general of the state of California after Kamala Harris vacated the role when she won a Senate seat in uh, 2017. And since then, he's really dedicated his tenure as AG of the state of California to healthcare. Um, you know, there was this spurious lawsuit that was filed in 2018 by uh, several Republicans, or by Texas, and I think has been joined on by several uh, several Republicans have, Supported the lawsuit since then um, that basically says that now that there's no uh, individual mandate penalty, then it's no longer um, a form of taxation, it's a form of coercion, and it's unconstitutional. The the entire ACA is unconstitutional for that reason, which is a really cockamamie argument that uh, legal scholars don't accept. Uh, but instead of you know fight back for the law, um, the Trump administration hung back, and Javier Becerra stepped in and um, you know to defend the law on behalf of uh, Democratic governors uh, in several different states. So he really you know decided to make that his thing. He also um, filed an antitrust suit against a major hospital conglomerate in Northern California called Sutter Health. Um, And that ended in, uh, I think, a couple hundred dollar settlement for, you know, various payers and various um, levels of government. I don't know exactly who got the settlement, but I think one of the conditions of the settlement was that uh, people could only be charged so much for out-of-network care,
0: um, Hmm.
2: which is, you know, a a relative win under the circumstances. Uh, He's also supported in the past the use of... Um, two different parts of the federal code that potentially allow the executive to uh, break patents so that they can lower drug prices. Um, these two aspects, or the one of the one of the federal codes has been used before for things like you know military tech but uh, hasn't been used for drugs and he's signed on to letters in the past urging uh, Obama to, invoke march and rights through the book by dole act so that's something that's potentially interesting to investigate and um, he's also been pretty supportive of safe injection sites mm. as far as I understand so you know there's definitely uh some stuff to like there uh, I think that you know the downside is that people are pretty disappointed in you know how he's handled uh, the jails and prisons uh under covid um, and that he could have done more to to vacate those and That's definitely a stain, Uh, but I was definitely I was pleasantly surprised by Becerra's pick uh, compared to you know what I what I thought might happen uh, or could happen and that we've seen happen in other cabinet posts. So you know, knock on wood, uh, one of the one of the better pieces of news from the Biden camp, I think.
0: Yeah, I was definitely expecting uh, an insurance exec in this position. So, (laughs) what do you think uh, motivated? The choice of not At least not the worst possible option Like why is this Why are we seeing something uh, That's a little bit better Than some of us would have expected Is that a sign for hope more broadly Or is this kind of just You know a one time thing
2: Yeah Um. I, I mean I think that he was probably A pragmatic choice in a couple ways One he really has used His tenure as AG of California To be you know, the healthcare guy, and doing so from the position of AG and being an expert on healthcare law, I think that that probably said something about, you know, the kind of front that the Biden administration thought it might be fighting on, that, you know, we need someone to uh, try to make lemonade out of the fact that there's a good chance Democrats won't have the Senate, and that, you know, they'll be, they'll be trying to win things through the executive to, you know, hold on to protections to, you know, basically reverse the, uh, some of the regulatory changes that happened under Trump. Um, so I think that, that was probably part of it. Uh, I also think HHS is, uh, the agency, you know, uh, health and human services, and they work with refugee resettlement. So refugee resettlement is the agency that, um, you know, came under fire for, uh, I mean, came under, so it was forced on HHS, the, you know, child separation, um, policy and, uh, you know, unaccompanied minors go through HHS. And I think that, you know, Becerra being, uh, Hispanic, I think that they probably, um, wanted him to helm, uh, that program moving forward and try to, Turn that back in a good direction, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough to get inside the heads of the Biden administration.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that both of of those points are really well taken, and I it, it seems that many of the picks that the Biden administration has made so far, um, not only of course you're you know you run of the mill centrist that they were always going to pick, but a lot of them seem very clearly positioned as kind of a, a way to visibly like start to undo some of the what the Trump administration has done. And I think that Becerra was like a pretty visible opponent of the Trump administration as AG of California. Um, And also, yeah, yeah I mean, I just I, I think that it's kind it it's a very like the optics of it make make sense for the the moment.
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely true.
0: I want to skip back to something that we talked about a few minutes ago, which is the fight for Medicare. And I know that that is something that you've really looked into. Um, And, you know, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how that happened and if there are lessons we can learn from that fight about how we might go about making Medicare for all a reality.
2: Yeah, um, so I think that the win for Medicare in 1965 is typically thought of as, um, you know, the, the end point of a couple decades of agitation you know, it starts, so basically, we have during World War Two, the private health insurance massive system massively ramps up, because there are, you know, to, to preserve war um, production, there's a freeze on wages. And so to compete for workers, factories start offering benefits. And, you know, the, the Roosevelt administration, knowing that Healthcare costs are rising and people generally, you know, are uncovered, they kind of approve of this and, you know, make it easier, uh, eventually with a tax break, uh, a little later. And so, you know, at the end of the war, basically, you know, we accidentally created this entrenched or further entrenched uh, the private health insurance system. uh, Pretty inadvertently, that wasn't anyone's, I mean, probably the health insurer's plan, but no one else's, uh, and so after the war, um, under Truman, people, you know, pivot back toward healthcare uh pretty immediately. But it's really, you know, pushed back extremely hard by uh, the AMA, by different uh, industrial interests. And so it's basically dead by 1950. Uh, and then over the course of several years after that, People continue pushing, continue pushing. And in the late 50s, uh, labor <clears throat> gets really involved. And, you know, workers, uh, mostly retirees, because at this time, you know, a lot of unions were starting to struggle with healthcare costs of uh, older people who were obviously, you know, very difficult to insure. Uh, and, you know, they start campaigning Uh, writing to their physicians to try to get them on board. Um, I think something like 14,000 senior citizens showed up at uh, the Democratic National Convention in 1964. A little bit before that, uh, while he was still president, Kennedy headlined a big rally at Madison Square Garden that was completely sold out about uh, Medicare um, to pivot toward older people. And I do think that the you know, the the boots on the ground, the the retirees who were mobilizing for this uh, really made the difference. Um, You know, I think a lot of people, as I started to to describe, a lot of people look at that episode in history and think, you know, Medicare was basically the compromise position between totally privatized insurance and uh, national health insurance, something closer to single-payer because it basically, you know, it's it's a public provision for a really difficult group of people to insure. And of course, it came out at the same time, you know, Medicaid was rolled out next to it, which is for the very poor. And so they thought like, okay, you know, for these, for these populations, we'll cover them. Uh, everyone else is on uh, private insurance uh, through their employers. I think that that's a little bit off, because insurance rates among elderly people were higher than is generally understood i think that at the time around 50 percent of older people were insured uh, which you know creating a market where uh a public like uh, creating a public program where around 50 percent of people were insured is more than zero uh which i think is how it's genuine generally described but you know i think that the big takeaway from medicare is that the reason that Medicare won and national health insurance in the 40s didn't um, was basically the fact that people were mobilized for it. Uh, mm-hmm. Industry and the uh, doctors, the AMA, pushed back extremely hard against Medicare the way that they did in the 40s. And I'm sure, I, I don't know if you remember, there's like a famous recording of Ronald a Re- young Ronald Reagan talking about how, you know, Medicare is socialized medicine, don't let it into our American lives. He basically recorded that for the American Medical Association, the, you know, trade group of doctors. And they sent out this little record to uh, doctors' wives, actually, and kind of encouraged them to throw parties and play this in the background and, you know, talk all of their friends into opposing Medicare. Uh, But this stuff didn't work because people were mobilized for it. and right mobilizing people power for healthcare financing reform uh, historically has been difficult. So I hope that, you know, if there's a lesson to be learned, it's that we need to learn that that's the secret sauce and we need to do that again.
1: Totally. And and I, I hope that people, you know, haven't gotten too discouraged by the, you know, by the fact that the Joe Biden is our next president and that we still most likely will have a Republican controlled Senate. Um, because I do think that, you know, I think there's a difference between incrementalism and just like something that's a long game. And I think most of the progressive movements, uh, that you described, uh, and the, the progressive gains, uh, at the federal level have been, you know, e- even the ones that seem to be relatively fast were decades in the making very often. So that, that's not to say that I want uh, the U S getting Medicare for all to take decades, but I, I just think there is a lot to be hopeful for uh, in terms of the, the trends of the last six years or so. Uh, and, and i think there is a growing public mandate for it um which yeah gives does does give me some hope and and there i i had hoped that uh <laughs> that the the one silver lining of this this terrible pandemic was that a uh a nationalized healthcare system would become kind of unavoidable in people's minds. Uh, but I that hasn't happened, unfortunately. Um, but I still think that there is, I mean, it's clear from the polling that, uh, you know, the majority of Americans support it now. And I think that, uh, I think we do, we have ground to fight on at this point.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know how much or how reliable polling there's been on how the popularity has changed uh since the beginning of the pandemic specifically. Uh I think, you know, in general, we know that for the past couple of years, popularity has been trending upward and, you know, as people learn more about Medicare for All, they're sort of inoculated against these inane counterarguments that we've become so used to from you know, centrist Democrats and uh, people in the healthcare industry, et cetera. Um, I think, I mean, you know, not to, not to be um, a, a doomer, but I think in terms of the pandemic, the thing that makes the need for Medicare for all so urgent and obvious isn't necessarily... COVID itself. um, Because, you know, obviously, there have been people who face terrible healthcare access issues who have COVID or who avoid treatment or who get huge bills, those things have happened. But um, I I think that there's also been a willingness to make sure that people get COVID specific treatment. But I do think that especially if there's a bigger recession after this, um, the number of people who are severed from their insurance is going to skyrocket. Mm -hmm. And the number of, um, you know, uh, people who... Are trying to sign up for Medicaid, whose budgets will be incredibly—I mean, whose budgets are already being stretched in many, many states. Uh, Most states have, you know, draconian budget laws that they're not allowed to uh, borrow money and go into debt like the federal government. So it's really difficult for some states to absorb the number of people that I think that they're going to try to have to absorb and you know, I think it remains to be seen the impact that that's going to have on people, because I think a lot of people are going to lose coverage, scramble to get back on uh, whatever stopgap initiatives people are able to pass won't be permanent. And, you know, I think I think we're not necessarily in the clear in terms of in terms of, uh, you know, political crises that make the need for single payer very
1: obvious.
0: Insurance premiums have also gone way up and will continue to go way up as insurance companies try to, you know, not lose money by by paying out as much as they paid out on COVID. I don't want to say uh, that they're trying to offset their costs because obviously they're trying to make the biggest profit possible. But I mean, people are, I think, you know, paying in some cases like hundreds more than they were the previous years. Is that... Accurate.
2: Well, I, I mean, premiums have been going up for a long time, and for you know various reasons um, for different people. But I think in a lot of cases, insurers have actually done really, really well during the pandemic because you know as much as they were paying out for COVID care, uh, pretty much all other elective care was suspended. Um, so in a lot of cases, they're paying out less money Mm. than they would have. And I think that they're definitely taking in, but, you know, even if they are making more money than they would, it's not like they're passing those savings and those offsets back onto their patients. I mean, they have, you know, laws about how much overhead they're able to use in general, but for the most part, I mean, these are publicly traded companies who, need to not just make just as much as they did yesterday or last quarter, but to make more and more and more. And so there's always going to be that incentive for growth in revenue, growth in profits. And we're going to keep seeing that until something changes.
0: That is uh, one more thing that is absolutely horrific about the private insurance system. I guess, you know, I like, with the pandemic with as many people unemployed as there are who have lost their insurance coverage with these rising premiums with being uninsured scarier than it's ever been really like i would think that this would kind of push people to a breaking point of really rallying around medicare for all and being willing to take mass action that's definitely what i thought was going to happen at the beginning of the pandemic but you know, what I do feel concerned about is like seeing this summer around uh, police violence, like the biggest mass action I've ever seen in my life uh, and most of us have ever seen in our lives and and, yeah. and the way mm-hmm. that like, you know, neoliberals were able to kind of channel that into, you know, like reform this or that and, you know, and just kind of like just sort of slowly uh drain out the energy like you know defund the police is obviously like you know a a slogan that many people including barack obama are saying oh you know that's like too much you know people are a lot there was a lot of blame Mm -hmm. for you know in democrats who lost on the demand to defund the police and i guess i just you know I'm, i'm wondering like if There is like a way to surmount both the discouragement that people feel about making a big change, Mm. and also to you know sort of like to borrow a medical term, like a inoculate a movement against being able to like be um, you know being watered down. Be watered down, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I think that that's really hard, and what you were saying before about movements lasting for years. And that's not to say that like the goal is to not do anything for years and years, but we know, you know, historically and intuitively, uh, it, it takes a long time to shift public opinion and to, you know, yeah. dispatch people out to have organizing conversations, whether that's at people's doors or, you know, playing organizer in your homes or with your social networks and having the kind of conversations with people that really hears what they value and hears what they want and speaks to that and meets them where they are. Um, I think that a lot of that stuff takes a long time. Um, That's the kind of work that I think makes it easier for something to not get watered down. um, And, you know, definitely helps... Get people to understand why it's so important that you know private insurers don't have a role in an equitable health system. Um, you know, as for as for things being watered down, or even you know, when people talk about incrementalism, um, I, I guess you know my my position on some of that is um, I feel like people talk about incrementalism in a certain way on well i think that i think that both that i think that liberals talk about it disingenuously at times you know i think there are a lot of people who talk about you know oh i love medicare for all too but let's let's go for more incremental changes and that's actually the goal i don't think that there's anything um you know i mean I, i think that i think that when when the left is in a situation where something is actually happening. Like, I I don't, I don't necessarily think like an all or nothing posture is the only ethical way forward when something's actually happening. I think it makes no sense to do that, you know, as an organizing tack or a political education tack. But, um, you know, when it came time to pass the ACA, Bernie Sanders basically withheld his vote for, um, you know, pretty beefy provisions on community health centers that served uh, people in poor communities and that that was, you know, his his position. And so I think that eventually, you know, I don't, th- I don't think that there are too many people who disagree with that, that when you're really down to the wire, uh, are there things you can claim? And I think that, you know, deep, deep long-term organizing can help people identify what the things worth fighting for are, um, you know, help prioritize what's what's the biggest deal, what's not the biggest deal, um, you know, that, that you'd want something like funding for community health centers over um, cost-sharing reduction payments to insurers on the marketplace, <laughs> for example. Um, that would be a pretty obvious one, but, um, you know, I, I think it gets people to understand the policy well, how it works, and, um, you know, if need be, basically help guide you into what, what concessions are the smart ones and what are the smarter things to hold out for.
1: That makes sense. This is a very, a very pragmatic way to look at things. And I, I appreciate it. I do, I do think we, Kate, Kate and I vacillate a a lot on here between like doom and hope. And there is a third (laughs) <laughs> there is a, mi- a middle <laughs> um and there is you know yeah these these fights take take a long time uh and i i think i think the overarching thing is just that we we can't act like hope is lost because it's not
2: i wish i i wish i could remember who said this it's you know something that's come up in dsa meetings and stuff and i'm sure one of your listeners can tell me you know, what, what writer or thinker said this, but something like, you know, for socialists and leftists, they need to have one foot in the real world uh, and one foot in the world as it could be. And, mm. that, you know, if you're missing either of those things, you can't be effective. Um, so I think that, you know, liberals have their feet, or even, you know, if you're if you're speaking in in good faith and you really do think that there are people who do support single-payer, but you know, decided to vote for uh, Hillary or Biden anyway, um, that those people have both feet in the real world. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't, I think this is more of a care, like to the degree that there are people who, you know, think Medicare for all or bust. And even if, you know, the squad is the deciding vote on a uh, massive expansion of, you know, whatever, a, a, a thing that's, decent but falls short of medicare for all and they'd rather just you know see millions of people lose insurance then that's you know two feet i don't i don't even know (laughs) if that counts as you know the world where it could be but obviously when you are politically maneuvering i think that it is important to you know think about institutional constraints to some degree and i mean there are certainly plenty of them in the u.s political system and I think our our job is to change the political context that governs a lot of those institutional constraints um that can mean various things but yeah i mean we have to contend with life as it exists mm. unfortunately
1: <laughs> i personally won't i won't do it i i'm i want to i'm gonna fully check out for about two hours and then <laughs> i'll be back but um no that's as long as i could do it but
0: biden in his uh campaign he was talking about a public option and you know pretty soon after he won uh the primary definitively the um the discourse kind of switched to like well you know the the cabinet is empty or whatever they say about like not having enough money uh i'm wondering like you know do you anticipate that there will be a push for a public option under biden what a depressing sentence i know but i'm you know i'm wondering like yeah, yeah is, there, <laughs> is there is there is there some path to which like more people especially people who are out of work now um are are going to be able to uh, get covered.
2: No, I mean, I think that I I haven't heard Biden talk about the public option pretty much since Bernie dropped out. Um, That's not something that he had any (laughs) record or history of supporting in the past. And yeah, I think that that probably is a cautionary tale. And, you know, I think a lot of people can be guilty of this, me included. But I think that, you know, especially at the height of its popularity, 2017, 2018, when you had all of these senators and all of these uh, representatives signing on as co-sponsors in the Senate and House Medicare for All bills. um, I think that it wasn't necessarily obvious at the time, the degree to which, um, you know, that support is uh, maybe, you know, a mile mile wide and an inch deep. And I, I think that that's definitely the case with, Biden and uh, the public option. I don't think that there was ever a very sincere commitment there. Um, you know, I, I mean, what, whether, whether that's even on the table, uh, I mean, I think probably largely depends on how the Georgia special elections end up. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's, uh, if, if Democrats have the, majority vote then I think that you know there will have to be a push for something um you know whether that's public option whether that's I I mean off the top of my head I don't I don't know what else would be possible procedurally um you know I mean that that would also entail like I mean public option would entail as far as I understand repealing or taking away the filibuster so I You know, it it would require some, um, like, tactical maneuvering that I don't necessarily have on the top of my head. Yeah. um, Because I'm not, like, a full-time congressional reporter or anything. But, um, you know, I think think that the left has to push for these things regardless. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of just – performativeness to it especially when it comes to um you know fighting fighting centrists and fighting you know even under under trump but i think that a lot of people experience politics electorally and i I think that they need to see these fights happen and they need to see people on the ground they need to hear these arguments and I think it's valuable to set up expectations for politicians, even if we know that they're not going to follow them. Mm. Um, you know, I think that there's value in doing the performance of, you know, Biden Biden promised a public option and then abandoned it. What does that mean? And that, you know, that's, that's not about trying to convince Biden, like you can't change who he is as a person um, or like what his um, – uh what 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 he why he's going to do the things he's going to do but you know there are there are other people watching and listening um you know hope to reach them
1: yeah absolutely i i think we always have to keep pressure on on public officials in within our own party when we when we can
0: don't um, you dare criticize the queen of shade do not. You're right. Yes. I would never,
1: I would never. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi is my queen. She's never done anything wrong. I no think... notes on her tenure as, uh, as speaker. Or... You know
2: what pisses me off about like the whole like Pelosi girl boss thing is like that coat and sunglasses were really nice. <laughs> and I, I hated that like, Everyone was yeah them so hard because then I felt like in my heart like oh I shouldn't like this but I was like it's a nice coat they're nice, it's nice sunglasses
1: it, honestly yeah it was a great coat she did looked she did look really cool for a uh, I was gonna say for a woman of her age but maybe that's uh, that's
0: sexist I don't know wow Julia um, wow take I know, it to I'm a canceled. different leftist podcast I'm cancelled she's she's eighty you know
2: she's like, she's men, eighty men, when they're eighty should be grateful to look good too.
1: Yeah, no, she looked cool uh in that yeah. coat. It was a nice coat. I love a coat. I love outerwear. I lived in the Northeast my whole life. I yeah. I I live in outerwear. I will never take away anyone's outerwear. Um Yeah, no, I I would,
2: not, I would not expect that of you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, she's uh she's tough and she's got to go. But yeah, no, I I really do think that um I think so much of the reason why we got to where we are as a country and spe- specifically in the Democratic Party is that, like, I I don't know. the Our elected officials kind of, like, forgot who they work for, and that sounds very sort of Pollyanna-ish, but um, I think a lot of, like, constituent anger has been pretty powerful uh, mm-hmm. over the past certainly the past 10 years since I, you know, I, I haven't been admittedly, I haven't been, uh, an eligible voter for that, uh, that much of my life, I guess. But, um, wow. What a brag. Cool. Okay.
0: I'm old. (laughs) Sorry. No, I'm,
1: no, I'm, I'm 30. I'm 30. I'm it's, it's happened. Uh, but, yeah, no, I don't know. Like, maybe I'm I'm just taking like a, sh- maybe I'm, what I'm trying to say by that is just maybe that I'm taking like a particularly short view, but it does seem that uh, people are much more engaged and mobilized than they were under the Obama administration, like Democrats.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's definitely true. Uh, I think that part of that is because Obama had this great, Grassroots operation that got him elected, and then he promptly disbanded it. Yeah. Uh, which I think was, you know, one of the gravest mistakes uh, of several <laughs> in his presidency. Um, I do think, yeah, I mean, I think that there are more people mobilized now. Um, I hope that they continue to be under Biden. And I also think, you know, people, I, I've had this conversation with so many people. And I think that some people think it does sound Pollyanna-ish or naive to say, like, we're going to mobilize people into it. And of course, I realize that it's not that easy and that, mm. you know, just just going out with a protest sign doesn't necessarily accomplish every objective. But when you think about the dynamics that push politicians to do what they do and, um, you know, back something, vote for something, agitate for something, make this deal or that deal, whatever you want to go into. Um, you know, we 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 find it very obvious why, uh, like, campaign donations from company X might affect what a politician does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that people on the street and the media narrative that that shapes, um, you know, these people are complete narcissists by definition. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can't be like, like you, you are somewhat obsessed with yourself if you're in politics and if you like accidentally ended up in politics without being obsessed with yourself, you get obsessed with yourself once you're there just because it's such a bizarre singular world. And, you know, they're very, very, very motivated by, Um, like press coverage by the way that people talk about them on Twitter. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's equivalent to a major fundraiser hosted by uh, Exxon or whatever, but it's it's one thing among many. And I think that, you know, people are not only more mobilized, but they're more keyed into politics. And I think that there are more stories about these, like, you know, I, I don't think that under Obama, there was a ton of press coverage about, like, you know, shaming people from the left or, like, what the left thinks about X or Y. Of course, there was some. Um, But, you know, now, if you are a politician on the Democratic side, that's definitely part of the cacophony of things that surround you all day. And, you know, knock on wood, just hope that these people can be shamed into some things. And I think that that's part of what the Medicare for all movement does. I mean, eh, you know, people get driven crazy by it. But like Medicare for all has a really, um, like, powerful fan base, (laughs) for lack of a a better phrase. I mean, if someone like betrays Medicare for all or shits on it, um, you know, that that politician gets blowback. And I think that that's, unfortunately, playing with these people's egos in the press is, you know, one of the weapons at our disposal. Um, Absolutely.
1: And I've been arguing for the weaponization of shame for most of my life. It's true. Like on our very first episode, she was she was
0: out there. Sl- not not i don't want to say that she thinks that sluts should be shamed but you no. know among other people sluts and everyone else you know
2: yeah, it's, well, it's kind of I mean, like
0: a you know, south park or something but for shame yeah yeah well, don't have to
2: worry about punching down when it's a politician yeah, so, yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely throw whatever you want to at them
0: yes <laughs> well i think this is kind of like a you know a Uh, an incrementally hopeful place to leave it, I guess. Um, Oh, boy. But uh, I would love uh, to uh, hear where our listeners can find you and read more of your work, Natalie.
2: Yeah. um, Well, I have a website, com. That's my last name. That's why I chose that URL. Uh, I'm sorry. I thought that was funny, but it wasn't.
0: No, it was good. We liked it. (laughs)
2: Okay, good. Um, and then uh, I'm at Natalie Shirley on Twitter.
0: Awesome! Thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show, Natalie. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I definitely I feel a little more optimistic now. It's it's hard to feel anything because I'm on like four antidepressants since uh, right. <laughs> the pandemic well, thank started. You guys, yeah.
2: And Thanks, yeah, Kate. I mean, I'm not I'm not someone who. Uh, You know, I I totally understand not feeling optimistic, and I wouldn't even describe my mood as optimistic, but I do think there's something politically useful in, you know, looking at the landscape and trying to find where the points of optimism could be, even if you don't feel them. Uh, Totally. You don't want to lie to people, but... Gosh, if you're a leftist, you'd better learn to manufacture some optimism. I know. All of this is
1: useless. Oh, yeah. I, I, I know. We're, <laughs> we're seizing the means of optimism. Yeah.
0: Where are they? As a quick side note, like, uh, j- okay, totally new topic just for a second. I just want to vent that. Like uh, The like socialists that are saying That uh, we should stop Saying defund or abolish the police Because it doesn't poll well And it isn't popular I was like dude you know what else doesn't poll well Uh, Socialism So you know We we have to fight for what we think is moral
2: Yeah I mean you know and, And get to a point where it is more popular And people understand it And those people get inoculated against bullshit too
0: Yeah totally All right, Natalie, well, we'll let you go. Thanks again. We'll be back on Sunday with our Patreon episode for the week. And then we will uh, see you next week. Thanks
1: thank you so much for listening to reply guys if you like the show please rate and review us on apple Podcasts. it really helps other people find us Uh, the show is hosted by kate willett and me julia claire our producer is Genevieve garrity our theme song was performed by emily fremgen who wrote the song with kate willett our artwork is by adrian lobel if you want to find us on twitter we're at kate willett with two l's and two t's and i'm at O julia tweets o h julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with
0: us bernie take us out
1: as i went walking
2: that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below
1: me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me.
0: This land is your land. This land-